Listen as I read Acts chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on you what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Let me pray that God would apply his word by the power of the Holy Spirit into our hearts, that we too would be changed by the word spoken and preached. Let me pray. Father, we come today because we are people who need gospel hope. 
we come as those living in these last days, the days of anticipation, the anticipation of the return of Christ. We live with the weight of sorrow and sadness, knowing that the world is not as it should be, and it is not as it will be. For Jesus, our King, is coming again. And so, Lord, let us live as a church burdened by the pain around us, but not broken by sorrow. A church that is bold in proclaiming the gospel because Jesus, our Savior, died for our sins. Jesus, the true Son of God, the Messiah, has been raised from the dead. Jesus, our Savior, lives. And so, Father in heaven, transform us. By the power of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the summer of 1863, the small Pennsylvania town of Gettysburg rotted. Thousands had been killed on the battlefield. On those days in July when the armies of the North and South met. And after the battle was done, the the bodies had to be buried. Leaders in the town wanted to put together a cemetery. And they decided that it would be appropriate to, to hold a gathering, to bring dignitaries to dedicate this place. And so they thought, who could come to give a speech? Because a speech would be expected, the centerpiece of the day's events. Who could offer words of hope? Perhaps it would echo for generations, or at least would echo to the end of this war. I mean, the choice was clear. Only one man would be appropriate for this day. Edward Everett. He was the most famous order in the country. A former senator, a governor, an ambassador. The man who had led Harvard University. A man famous for his eloquence and greatness. Everett was the obvious choice. Now, of course, we remember the words of November 19th. 1863, but not for the two-hour speech given by Everett. Although it was apparently well-received that day, he lived up to the expected billing of eloquence. No, of course, we remember that day because of the brief address that was given as a follow-up by President Lincoln. In only 275 words, he set the scene. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And even though we don't count years by score, we know the line. And his words echo through the generations. Lincoln created a picture of promise and hope. He said, these dead shall not have died in vain. In the midst of the war, he offered hope, a path forward. This nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. The words continue to roll off the tongues of school children. That the government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. In less than three minutes, the president framed the nation's upheaval. He explained what had taken place and what was now becoming hallowed ground because of the sacrifice made. He offered hope for the future. And in some sense, that's what takes place. Here in the words of Acts chapter 2, 
The man you wouldn't expect, Peter. Peter, the one who has, through the Gospels, been a fool. Peter, who Luke has shown us to be filled with his own selfish pride. Peter, the one who betrayed Jesus, who denied Jesus after Jesus' betrayal. Peter said, I don't know the man, is now surprisingly the one who stands and speaks. And in less than, in, in, in barely 400 words, this address of Acts chapter 2 points back to what God has done. It describes the, the holy place that the church is now standing in. It gives them a vision for the future. Now, of course, we know he spoke other words. It, it actually tells us that in verse 40 with many other words, though we have but a summary. But it's a summary that only took me three or four minutes to read to you. And so that's the three or four minutes that you and I need. Inspired by the Spirit for the church to change the trajectory of who we are. To show us what God has done, the the holy place in which we now stand, and our hope for the future. And so let's look at the words of Peter here. Because we read in verse 14 that Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice. He addressed the crowd. And so we have the Pentecost address, the Jerusalem address, the first Christian sermon preached by the church, the announcement of gospel hope here. And Peter echoes and, and reminds the people that they have to listen, that this is important. He says in verse 14, fellow Jews, all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Miraculous, marvelous things have taken place, but you need to understand what they are. And then he says, listen carefully to what I say. He knows that all of history has changed. That the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the turning point of history. That now what they have just experienced on this day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, changes everything for the church. And so let's listen carefully. First, as we look at the past promise of God. No, the first thing that Peter has to do is, is answer that objection that's already been raised. W- what's going on here? We're hearing these men from Galilee speak to us in our own languages. This, this must be a, a case of drunkenness, that, that, that they, have, they have lost their minds. They have given themselves over. They have lost control. And yet, that doesn't make any sense. For these men of Galilee are speaking with clarity. And so Peter begins by saying, no, 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 it's early in the morning. These men are not drunk. What's happened here is the very thing we were waiting for. And Peter begins this sermon by reading from the Old Testament prophecy, the words of Joel announcing the outpouring of God's spirit. He turns and says that, that God in the last days says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. It's the promise of forgiveness to the people of God, if they repent. That's the context back in Joel. The, a, a plague of locusts was devouring the crops of the people. And it was a, a, a plague sent directly by God. Now we're told that in Joel too. But there's the promised forgiveness if the people will repent, if they will turn from their path of sin and turn and follow after God. But it's a warning, a warning of judgment, that we all deserve punishment. And so he says to them that this is the very thing we were waiting for, the promise that God had given to us, that the Spirit would be poured out, given to all people. Not merely for a moment of inspiration given to a prophet, but given permanently to the church, to everyone who calls 
on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the great and glorious promise that he ends with there in verse 21, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you see, he's doing something marvelous. He's taking the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, and applying it to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God himself. And so he wants them to listen. He says that in verse 22. He repeats that command, that they must listen to what's being said. Men of Israel, verse 22 tells us, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you and through, and, and, and through him, as you yourselves know. He's saying you've seen the work of God, these past promises of God shown in the ministry of Jesus Christ, a man. And, and that's an important theological point. That, that God didn't just appear, but that God himself sent his son to be born a man. In our place, he could be condemned then for our sins. And so Jesus has come. He's been shown to be the one sent by God by these miraculous signs, signs that these people have seen themselves. And so Peter is telling them what God has done in the past. He says, men of Israel, and then turns in verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, on the one hand, we hear those words as, as ordinary words because those are the words that we would expect to hear in church. A reminder that Jesus was sent by God's plan to die in the place of sinners. But, but we might be even more sensitive to the way in which Peter phrases it. He says, men of Israel. It, it sounds to us like what Peter is doing is placing the blame on Jews. It sounds to us. Like, Peter is anti-Semitic, and, and tragically, these kinds of words in Scripture have been used in the history of the church to harm those that don't believe. But maybe that's the, your, your concern today. Maybe not this specific concern, but your concern more broadly that, that here's the problem with religion. Religion always causes division. Religion always causes conflict. Religion leads ultimately to violence, that religion itself is destructive. Now first, remember the context here. Peter himself is included in that language, men of Israel. All 12 of the apostles are the men of Israel. Remember, the very fact that there are 12 of them is a reminder that they are of the people of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he's not, he's not condemning those that are, that are separate from him. He's saying that we, the chosen people of God, rejected the Messiah. And, and, and see, the, so the, the, the problem with violence is a problem that rests in the human heart. It's not a problem with religion itself, because there are lots of irreligious worldviews that lead to great violence. See, the problem of division, the problem of pain, the problem of war is a human problem, not a religious problem. And actually, true religion brings us the solution— the solution that when we come humbly to God, we can't stand apart and point our fingers at other people as if we are better than they are. Remember who it is who's speaking. Peter, one of the Jews. Peter, one of the twelve. Peter, the one who had denied Christ, not once, but three times. And so true humility 
it extends an offer. True religion, Christianity, it expands the hope of the gospel. It doesn't exclude people, but welcomes them in. Because remember, who is Peter speaking to? We, we saw back in, in verse 5 last week that Peter is speaking to God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. See, this gospel message goes to everyone. See, true religion humbly takes the gospel to everyone. See, religion itself isn't the problem. The human heart is the problem. And Christianity is actually the answer. And so Peter is showing what God has done for us in the past, the promise of God and the work of Jesus Christ, the great and glorious signs which God did through Jesus, the one who was crucified. But then Peter is saying, but, but right now we stand in this holy moment. This is the moment we stand when the, the Spirit of God is being poured out upon us. The promise that was given to Joel is happening right now. Because Jesus, who died, has been raised to life. Jesus, who was raised to life, now lives as the exalted king in heaven. That's where the, the sermon, where the address of Peter, the argument continues. We, we read in verse 23 that Jesus was handed over by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And verse 24 begins with that, that beautiful preposition, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And just as Peter did in the first point in his sermon by turning to an Old Testament scripture passage, he does again here, turning to the words of David in Psalm 16. A, a, a promise that, that one of David's descendants would reign on the throne forever. And so it's a promise given by God here because David himself was a prophet, was announcing what would come. And so when David says, you will not let your Holy One see decay, David couldn't have been speaking about himself because history is clear. David died and was buried. And in Peter's day, you could still go and visit the tomb. David was dead. David's hope was in the one whom God would send, the descendant of David, the Holy One with a capital H and a capital O. Jesus himself has come. He is the one who would not be left in the tomb, but God would free him from the, 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 the binding of death. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus because Jesus is the true and perfect son of David because he is the son of God. And so the prophecy of the Psalms have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. See, David, verse 31, we're told, seeing what was ahead spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the resurrection of the Messiah, that the Messiah was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, verse 32 says, and we are all witnesses of the fact. See, what you're seeing today, Peter is saying, this, this cacophony of voices announcing gospel hope in their own language is the expected result of the resurrection of Jesus. But not just the resurrection. We stand on this holy ground because the Holy One has been raised from the dead, but he has been exalted now into heaven. That's where the book of Acts began with the ascension, the rising of Jesus from earth back to heaven as the true Messiah, as the Christ, as the king. And so Peter, again, now shifting from, from death and resurrection now to the exaltation in verse 33, says that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. 
And see, as the exalted king, he can now pour forth that which God promised, his Holy Spirit, to empower the church, the third person of the Trinity. And admittedly, this is deep and profound theology. See, but you notice here at the beginning, the the core doctrines of the Christian church, the Trinity, the the, the, the Christology, the, what we say and believe about Jesus as the Christ. These aren't things that were, that were figured out centuries later or made up by the church. They are very, at the very core of what it is to announce gospel hope. That God's son was sent to die in the place of sinners, that he was raised from the dead and exalted into heaven. And because of that, he has poured out his spirit so that the church now, individual believers, can hear the gospel truth and respond in faith and hope. That the church goes forth in boldness knowing what to say. That a man who would, have, who would have just weeks before only exalted himself now stands to exalt Jesus the Savior. The church which had been cowering in fear now stands in public and says, Jesus is the King exalted into heaven. And again, Peter turns back to the scriptures for his third point here. He turns now to Psalm 110, and he's saying again that that David couldn't have been speaking about himself because David calls another Lord, that the Lord is the one, Jesus Christ, who sits at God's right hand. And so, so Peter has pushed to this conclusion of his sermon in verse 36. Therefore, because Jesus is the one who brings the promise of God for the outpouring of the Spirit, because Jesus is the one raised from the dead, because Jesus is the one who has been exalted. Therefore, this is the conclusion, verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. You see the generous words offered to even those who by their own sin took Jesus to the cross. He says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. He is the Lord, Yahweh, in our midst. The one who came and stood among us, who lived among us, who died in our place. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised King of Israel, the King of the nations. He has been exalted into the heavens. And so in this most important moment in history, when the church finally speaks, what do they do? They focus on Jesus, on Jesus the Christ, Jesus our Lord. The sermon is rooted in Scripture, anchored to the past promises of God, to the prophecies announcing what would take place. See, this is a picture for us, a pattern of what it looks like to to follow after God in gospel hope. We look back to what God has done in the past. We, We read the promises of God. And so in the uncertainty of our present moment, we have an anchor because we know what God has said in the past. We know how that changes our present and we have his promises for the future that because Jesus reigns as the ascended king, Jesus will come again. And so we have true gospel hope. But see, this address of Peter This Pentecost address is important for us not just to know the history of the church, not just to know the trajectory of the church's mission, but it's important for us to consider personally. See, hearing that conclusion, that God has made Jesus, the one who had been crucified, Jesus is now, through the resurrection and ascension, declared to be both Lord and Christ, has an impact on 
you and on me, on each of us personally. See, because the conclusion of the sermon isn't that we merely understand these historical facts about what happened to Jesus. See, the conclusion of the sermon is what God's Spirit will do in each of us. Because look at what takes place. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. it's, It's beautiful, poetic language showing that God gets at the very core of who we are. By the power of his spirit, our emotions, our intellect, our will, the very fabric of who we are, God addresses. Not merely that we would intellectually know what has taken place, but that with our will, with our hearts, that we would respond. And so they bring this beautiful question, a question which the best of Christian preaching, really all Christian preaching, should, should cause us to ask. Maybe not always out loud, but, but brothers, they bring the question to Peter and to the apostles. What shall we do? So they realize that it's not just enough to know the sequence of events. It's not just enough to be able to understand, oh, that's what Joel was saying. Oh, that's what David meant in Psalm 16. Oh, that's the promise of exaltation in Psalm 110. See, this wasn't merely a a Sunday school class. This was meant to personally impact each one who heard. And so Peter gives them the answer. He says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized every one of you. In the name of, the, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's, a, it's the command to turn from our sin, to repent, to stop chasing our own way, and to make a turn toward God. In, in humility, we admit what we have done was wrong, but we now have hope in Jesus Christ. And then it's the command to be baptized, to publicly join the church, to be publicly identified with Jesus the Christ, but you do so in the name of Jesus Christ. See, it's making clear that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is calling on the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus who is the Christ. That it's only in Christ that we find forgiveness of sins. It's not in the good that we have done. It's not in our theology explained and understood. It's in throwing ourselves completely upon Jesus trusting in him alone, no longer saying, but, but look at what I am. Look at my name. Look at what I have accomplished. No, the, the only name that matters is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Jesus alone that we find salvation and hope. And so today, today you are being called to repent, to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And we see here not only the the individual response, that the Spirit of God is then poured out on all who believe. We see then the public mission of the church. Peter is is saying each of you needs to to publicly repent. But then you see the description of what what takes place. With many other words, they're they're warning the, the people, pleading with them that they need to be saved. But then he sends the church forward in mission. Because notice what's said in verse 41. This power of the gospel is that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. See, the last number that we'd had was only 120, gathered in anticipation of the outpouring of God's Spirit. That number has been miraculously multiplied by the Spirit of God himself, so that the church is now sent on a mission. 
And so the response is not only an individual response that we each need to put our trust in Jesus. The response is a corporate one, that we as a church should think, who must be added to this number? Those whom God is calling. The promise is for you and for for your children, for all who are far off. The church is sent on mission. Who is the one who needs to hear this good news from you today? Today, repent and put your trust in Jesus. He is our Savior. Now, the initial reactions to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address weren't positive. It didn't really stand out as important in its own time. One newspaper didn't hide its disdain. It called the president's words dishwatery. Without meaning, without hope, vague and vapid. Now, a few years ago, on the 150th anniversary of the address, one Pennsylvania newspaper officially retracted its review of the speech. In 1863, the Patriot News of Harrisburg had derided the president's silly remarks. They argued that it should no more, be no more repeated nor thought of. Now, it took them 150 years, but they finally admitted their failure. They called their original review a judgment so flawed, so tainted by hubris that they could no longer let it stand unaddressed in their archives. Perhaps today is a day for you to retract your previous opinion. That in humility you would admit your own pride. That having trusted in yourself, you have found yourself lost in your sins without hope. And so you turn, you repent, and you turn to God in hope. See, the address of, Peter's, uh, of Peter echoes in its beauty, a beauty which focused us on the greatness of God, on the sacrifice of Jesus, on his resurrection and exaltation. Peter stood and announced that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He, he declares that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He calls each of us to repent and be baptized. He declares that the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so today, repent and believe because this promise is for you. Let me pray that God would apply his word into our lives. Father in heaven, we rejoice in gospel hope that Jesus, our Savior, died for our sins, that he's been raised from the dead, showing that he is the Lord, that he is the Christ, our Messiah. And so, Father, for those who have listened today in doubt, those who have listened with questions, Lord, I pray that they would find hope in your word, truth in your gospel. Lord, for those of us who, are, who follow after Jesus, who declare him to be Lord, who declare him to be Messiah, Lord, I pray that you would make us bold in announcing the gospel, that we would know the, the filling of the Spirit which you have given to us, that we would have certainty in the promises of your word, that we would have a, willing, a willingness to stand and publicly announce good news, that Jesus Christ is the Lord that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Father in heaven, I pray 
that we as a church would make great the name of Jesus, that we would point to his death, that we would find hope in his resurrection, that we would rejoice in his exaltation, because Jesus Christ is our Lord, our Savior, and so we pray in his name. Amen.